The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Tonight we're reading from Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 20, so it's going to be a little bit, so stick with me. And I don't know about you, but tonight I feel like, um, and actually today, I've, there's really been a thick um, spiritual attack. Maybe some of you are feeling that even tonight in this moment, that you're having to fight for truth. Um, so as Ellis prayed, let's just um, really ask the Lord to continue to show us what truth is. And if you're struggling to hold on to a truth tonight, don't leave here without confessing that to a brother and a sister and let them help you fight for that truth, okay? Sorry, I just felt led to say that. I might be talking to some of you myself, so. <laughs> She's going to hijack the teaching tonight, and that's totally okay, because I know she wouldn't do it if she didn't feel like the Lord was giving her something to say. Acts chapter 19. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, capital W, way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick And their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. And I'm struggling with my voice. Can you please continue to read? Sure. I'm having to keep swallowing. I don't know what's going on. I think you sound great. Yeah, okay, of course. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And one day, this is crazy, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. 
and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Ephesians. How many of you grew up around sports? All right. Do any of you, um, have you, any of you that grew up around sports, did you play and ever play in a big game? You know, like a state championship or a playoff game or something like that? Well, part of, part of a big game, a lot of times, is which team can perform well within the first few minutes. And generally, the outcome of those first few minutes, a lot of times, can dictate the flow for the whole game. Well, I'm struggling a little bit on this first night going into this nine nights because I, I have gained a sense of importance of how important what we're talking through um, really is and how much I really want us to understand it. But I also know the fatigue that a lot of you brought into tonight. And I, and I want the power of the Holy Spirit to like illuminate us so that we have the energy to talk about this, to be able to focus on this. But I'm, I'm experiencing a little bit of some jitters because... In many ways, I feel inadequate to share this with you. I'm like, Lord, please, we want this to be um, a way of accountability. We want this to be a way of saying that there's something exciting coming to our church and we're going to be ready for it. But yet I also know that there's a lot of different tensions in the room. Some of us are fighting against physical illnesses that I'm aware of. Others of us, it's spiritual illnesses. And others of us, it's emotional and mental illnesses. And so, so much about what's going on in this room is even deeper than us just talking about this. And that's why I love some of the early letters. And if you were around when we talked through the letter of First Peter, you found in that letter what I feel like is very common for those people in the first century and what should be healthy practice for us is where we take time in a group like this and we talk about what is true about God. But then we have a moment where we can say, but I know that the five of you, that this is what you're dealing with. And I know that the 10 of you, I know you're dealing with this. And I know that there's, there's all of you women in here, you're fighting this. And all of you men, you're fighting against this. And, and so there's so many places in Scripture where there was truth being taught, but then the, the, the teacher would actually get more personal by breaking the audience down even smaller. And so I'm going to try to figure out how we can do that this week without some of us feeling like, well, man, Ellis just stepped into my zip code, so to speak, if you know what I mean by saying that. Like, I, I want the Holy Spirit to be the one that teaches and instructs. I want to be used by him. But at the same time, there's some really important things that we need to learn and that we need to interact with. And so as we step into a teaching on Acts 19, and as we look at the foundation for what it was like for Paul to plant a church that he ultimately would write a powerful letter to, I want us to be able to hear it and understand it. And so I'm asking the Lord for this. And so the letter to the church in Ephesus, which we didn't read tonight, we read from Acts 19. We will read again from Acts 19 and 20 tomorrow night. But then we will get into Ephesians chapter 1 on Thursday night. And so if you want to skip tomorrow night, shame on you. This one. Um, 
But tonight isn't going to feel like a let's go pray sermon. All right, I just want you guys to know this. I want us to pray, and I believe at the very end we will, we will have a sense of purpose to praying this evening. But tonight is laying a foundation for us to say, oh, wow, that's what the church is supposed to be like? I really want tonight to be like a mirror for us to evaluate because when you look at the letter of Ephesus to this church in Ephesus, it is one of the most complete works on what discipleship looks like. It's one of the most complete works in the scriptures on from the first word to the last word that really shows us what the church is supposed to do, what we are supposed to do, what is, looking, what is following after Jesus obediently look like. And so one of the things I'm going to ask of you this week is would you please commit to reading through the book of Ephesians at least once? If you can and you are able to, it should only take you about 15 minutes to 20 minutes to read it through. And so could you read it through completely in one day? I believe that the more that we read it and the more that we find ourselves teaching through it, the more that we are going to understand as we walk through it. And so the letter to the church in Ephesus, I believe, is going to address so many topics that some of them you're going to be like, I'd like to spend more time on that. And so when you bump up against the topic that we did not spend enough time on, I am giving you permission to write it in your journal and then for you to ask for time for us to talk through that issue more. Because some of us need more information on some things and less on others, but I'll tell you this, you're not all on the same page. So for me as a minister, it makes it really difficult. So at night, I want to address what I think will hit all of us, but then I want us to continue conversations so that we can gain fuller, more and more understanding about what it's really going to look like. What would it look like for us to interview Paul on his way to Ephesus and say, what is your church planting strategy? What would he be like if this was the room in Ephesus and there was a group of people that were helping him plant the church? What would Paul's vision statement be that everybody be like, yes, we want to be a part of that church and we're going to help you build it. I believe Acts 19 shows us that. I believe that there's some core things in this that's going to help us understand all that's happening. And then if you want to know what Paul did with his core team, the letter to Ephesus. And so hopefully we can begin to understand this. Let me just share a couple more things. The book of Acts and this letter to Ephesus is an incredible accountability tool for me. I want you to hear me when I say this. So much about Acts 19 and 20, well, so much of the book of Acts in general, as well as the letter to the church in Ephesus, tells me as a pastor what I should be doing. So there's a lot of this discussion tonight. You're going to be sitting back and being like, wow, Ellis isn't doing that. Ellis isn't doing that. Ellis isn't doing that. I'm just going to confess, that is true. Um, but the letter of Ephesians was written to all of us. And then there's going to be so much that we're going to find as we go through this as a form of accountability that you're going to realize that as the church, we should be doing things that we should be actively involved in. And so just about the time that you're like, wow, this is really hitting Ellis really hard. I'm going to turn it back on you and be like, wow, that's hitting you really hard. So can we commiserate together? Right. Can we seek truth together? Can we be held accountable together? 
because tonight having this group of people here is very encouraging for me. Because what I'm seeing tonight is a group of people that are saying, I want to know more. I want to seek God's face. I want to learn to pray. I want to learn to petition God. What does it look like to knock on the doors of heaven and for him to answer us? So the book of Ephesians, I believe, is a beautiful picture of how we make disciples and how leaders of faith make disciples that make disciples. And so hopefully we will see that. The book of Ephesians is written in two parts. The first part is theology. The second part is practice. So the whole first half of the book of Ephesians is a book about right thinking about God. That's what it is. So much of it is about what the Father did in salvation, what the Son did in salvation, what the Holy Spirit does in salvation. And so much of it then is about what we, how we, um, a theology of sin, a theology of right living, a theology of how we have a church and a family. So much of it is about what does God think about the church? What does God think about us? What is God? Who is God? So much of the early part of Ephesians lays that picture. But the whole ending of the book is how you and I live it out, how we live it out at work, how we live it out with our children, how we live it out in our marriage, how we live it out against evil people. So much of the book of Eph- uh, to, the, to the letter to the church in Ephesus was about theology and about practice. And so let me just say this one more time to you. Please read it as often as you can until the 31st. Because after the 31st, um, the message will self-destruct and you'll no longer have access to it. (laughs) Understanding context is why we're in Acts 19. Context is very, very important. But to the Western thinker, so many times context is sort of like just us trying to do something simple. Let me give it to you this way. I had seen a lot of movies and a lot of pictures about the pyramids in Egypt. And I had a great respect for the pyramids in Egypt. And I thought it was bad that the Transformers destroyed the pyramids in Egypt. Um, And all the other things relating to those particular pieces of property. But everything changed for me when I stood next to the pyramids in Egypt. When I had a chance to go visit Cairo and walk the streets and go see where they believed Jesus and Mary and Joseph were and had a chance to go through all of the historical parts of the city and and meet Coptic Christians that live in this trash pile that worship God in this beautiful um, hand-carved limestone sanctuary and then crest the hill and see the pyramids and then just walk up to them and touch them and have a chance to sit on them and see how small I was in comparison to them and to think how in the world did they build these knowing that they're thousands upon thousands of years old and then cresting the hill and seeing the sphinx that has its nose blown off because soldiers decided to use it for target practice um, and all understanding it and knowing about it is one thing but letting your emotions and awareness and your thoughts and everything getting encapsulated in it, it is a different experience when you almost sense that I can taste that, I can feel that. It's actually making me emotional thinking about it. And so Acts 19. Acts 19 is where we're going to understand the background of the why of the letter to the church in Ephesus so that hopefully we can understand more about why he would spend so much time on theology and so much time on practice. 
And so what we'll find here in the city of Ephesus is this. It was much like the New York City of its day. Actually, probably even a little bit more like London, you know, in the sense that it was a world city. It was a port city. And a lot of trade, international trade, was coming through it. It was one of the most important cities in the world, but specifically to the Roman Empire. Almost everything about the city of Ephesus was the best that it had to offer in that century. There's even um, historical facts around the type of plumbing that they had in some of the wealthier families, thinking that indoor plumbing wasn't really invented for a long time, but there were people in Ephesus that had these elaborate bathrooms and plays that they could adorn themselves because they had so much wealth, so much power, so much influence in the world that they were figuring out creative ways of using it. It was a center of all the trade that would come into that region of the world. It was also a place of all different types of spiritual, spirituality. It was a mecca for world religions. It was, it was a place where you had the freedom to think anything that you wanted to think about God, faith, people. It was a place that actually encouraged people to be free thinkers. But they also were a place where a special meteor had fallen from the sky. And that special meteor um, had all these bumps on it. And they decided to fashion an idol out of it that turned out to be Diana of Ephesus. Or if you're familiar with that at all, that would be the temple to Artemis. Artemis was at the time um, this female god. Then if you, if you look up pictures of the statue, she, the best way for me to say it is that she was a multi-breasted woman. Um, I mean, like dozens of them in the statue. It wasn't just like an extra one or two. It was like 20 or 30. And it was really weird that that was their symbolism of, of a goddess to be worshipped. But so much about Artemis was celebrated in this city. And the temple to Artemis was known as one of the seven wonders of the world. One of the most beautiful places and every year there was an entire month set aside to a festival to her. And then like Christmas is in our schedule, there was a special day of the year that Artemis, the goddess, would come and bring good to everybody. So much about all of that was taking place. It was known for the Caesars to store their money, their wealth, in the temple to Artemis because it was so majestic and it was so beautiful and it was so secure that the extreme wealthy used it as a bank because they knew that nobody was going to break into that temple and steal their money. So much of that community was around magic, was around astrology and all of these different types of influences. But here's one thing that I think is really important for us to understand about the city of Ephesus. Everyone there seemed to be spiritually aware. It's not like in our city on many occasions where people are like, ah, I don't really believe there is a God. Because in the city of Ephesus, everybody had a spirituality. When you look at the history books of the ways that the people thought, you would, you would have a hard time finding somebody in the city of Ephesus that didn't believe in a God, some sort of God that they worshipped. Most of them were idols fashioned with hands. That's part of the reason why at the end of the verses that Ginger read to you was that it talked about all these sorcerers coming and burning their scrolls and it was 50,000 drachma, 
We're going to talk tomorrow night. What happens to a city when people burn valuables and money just disappears? Generally a riot. How do you think Acts 19 ends with a riot? I mean, that amount of money disappearing in a fire was causing everybody to say, what in the world is going on? Because so much of the city of Ephesus was about spiritual worship. If we understand a little bit more, um, this letter to Ephesus, not the letter of Acts that Luke wrote, but the city of Ephesus, was a time that was around 60 to 62 A.D., after Christ's death, when Paul was writing this letter, it was somewhere around then. If I say around 60 or 62 A.D., how many years had it been since John's baptism? More than a decade, right? A few decades? I mean, it could have been 30 or more, dec- 30 or more years since John baptized at the Jordan River. And when Paul met the people in Ephesus, whose baptism did they claim that they had received? John's. And so when Paul rolls into town, he's bumping into people that hadn't been discipled since John the Baptist. Right? So imagine what they may or may not have understood when John, excuse me, when Paul approached them and he said to them, now again, what happened in the book of Acts? The Holy Spirit had come. We're now in another part of the world that was the gospel was spreading to the Jews and Gentiles around the world. And Paul runs into people that are very spiritual in the synagogue. They were in there worshiping and repenting underneath of John's baptism. And so these people thought that they were functioning in a right perspective with God. And then Paul shows up, sees their enthusiasm of their faith in God, and then asks them some questions. And then he's like, wow, you really haven't been taught since John. So do you know anything about the Holy Spirit? And they're like, the Holy Spirit? This is how little they knew. But they knew a baptism of repentance. But they had not been discipled for decades. And so we find that happening here. But as Paul is writing this letter to the people in Ephesus, where is he? He's in jail. He's actually chained to a guard in jail. He's now an old man. He's been chained to this guard and in this prison for two years And so when we step into the letter of Ephesians, I want us to be able to relate to an older man that loves a church and wants them to believe the right things and wants them to do the right things. And even while he's in prison, lonely and isolated, he does not have cable TV. He is not getting three meals a day. But he is in a prison in darkness and he's chained to a man that ultimately ends up taking the gospel all the way to Caesar's palace, right? Not the casino, all right? But he takes it all the way there because could you imagine being chained to the enthusiasm of the Apostle Paul? And so, so much of what's happening in this in this backstory of the letter, the letter to, or the Luke was writing about Acts 19 
is solely around the idea that the people in Ephesus were growing in an awareness about right thinking and about who God was and in the midst of a place where there were lots of gods. Paul is about ready to be crucified in Rome. So he's down to his last days. And he's writing to them knowing that his days are numbered. Imagine what the congregation would have felt when they finally saw this letter come to them after Paul had been teaching them for two years, for three years, and then he's now in prison. He's writing them a letter on things that he had taught them and reminded them, but they know he's about ready to face his death. Imagine if, for some reason, you knew that within a week or two, I wasn't going to be here anymore. And I was telling you, look, this is what is right and noble and just about God, and I need you to do these things. So much of that is being felt to these people in Ephesus. Acts 19 is the story of how God's kingdom was breaking in to the city of Ephesus. So how would Paul plant a church? Let's read this, verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. I'm not going to talk to you much about Paul and Apollos' um, relationship. Um, I'll leave that up for you guys to look at just to save some time. Um, there he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we have not heard that, the whole, uh, have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And so Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. And Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That's in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. And there were about 12 men in all. And so where did the church in Ephesus start? In the Jewish synagogue. These most likely were Jewish men that had received John's baptism. And for some reason, Paul was drawn to them. And they began to be sensitive to him. And he's like, what, you haven't heard anything since John the Baptist? So now you want me to tell you about Jesus? And they're like, yes, tell us about the one John was prophesying about. And then he introduced them. So they decided to be baptized. Paul prayed for them. The Holy Spirit came. And if we had time to reread everything Ginger read, you'll know that not long after these 12 had stated their faith in Jesus, there were a whole bunch of other Jewish people in the synagogue that got upset about Paul's teaching and ran them off to a private hall called Tyrrhenius. And so imagine a church on the corner and then us having to come to this beautiful room to be taught about Jesus. Because people were receptive to it, but also people weren't receptive to it. And this is what I really want us to understand as a church. When you draw near to Jesus, some people will automatically come with you. Others of you, you will face people that are, are going to say things to you that are like, why do you believe in Jesus? So much so that it might get so difficult for you, you might have to look for new work. You might have to look for a different place to be. It might be difficult for you in certain circumstances. But yet, these 12 men didn't let it stop them. They continued to draw in and close to them. One of the things that you'll notice when you go back through the book of Acts, which I hope that I whet your appetite to look, 
is that the church started in Jerusalem with Jewish believers and some Gentile believers, but every chapter you go through the book of Acts, there are more and more people that are different than Jews following after Jesus. They call them Gentiles. Different nations, different cities, different people, different beliefs and backgrounds. And when you and I understand who Jesus is, it crosses all barriers. That's one of the things I love about looking at across our church on Sunday mornings is seeing so many different people from so many different countries. And all I can say is, is Jesus can do that. And he wants to do that. He desires to do that. And when we get to the crescendo of Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, where it says God can do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, I believe that God is saying that to a church in Ephesus because they saw no color, they had no racism, and they didn't carry economic barriers. They were a people that saw people as loved by God, and there was no reason to be distant from anybody. And so when you begin, and if we get this right, and we understand the right thinking about God, then I believe our actions and how we treat people are going to look a whole lot different, and we will continue to mature in that as we go along. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. You can write this down in your journals. But I love how he prayed for them and the Spirit came on them. But listen to what Paul said to the church there. Verse 4 and 5. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God. I think this is important. I love what Paul does here. Because Paul is very strong. But listen to what he says. He, he basically looks them in the face. And he says, brothers and sisters, loved by God. Like, why do you think he would remind them that they're loved by God? Because the temptation for you and I is to feel that we're not loved by God, abandoned by God, right? All right I'm, I'm hoping that the stale faces that many of you are sending my way is because you're just thinking about this. But this is the deal. The truth is you're loved by God. That is the truth. And if we can understand what it really looks like to be loved by God, then we are going to have a different level of joy and a different level of excitement as we face our challenges. Because what makes us think we're not loved by God? Our circumstances. The life that we're living. Potentially the people in your family. People you work with. A dark city like Baltimore where a lot of you are like, why in the world did I have to accept a position at Hopkins University, right? Some of you are like, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. So much about our circumstances and external pressures on us are going to make us think that God doesn't love us. And what Paul is saying to the early churches, I don't care what you're facing, crucifixion or discouragement, abandonment, persecution, God loves you. And he goes on to say this to them, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you, not simply, listen to this, with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and a deep conviction. And you know how we lived among you for your sake. I love that. He's like, I know how we lived among you for your sake. Like he's saying to them in a powerful way, we modeled it for you. We had right thinking and then we lived it in front of you so that you could see that you can know this and live this at the same time. 
And then he goes on, and I love Paul's emphasis on the power of God in 1 Corinthians 4.20. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. The kingdom of God isn't just a matter of talk. Like The purpose of us getting together for nine straight nights isn't just so that we can talk about God better. The purpose of us getting together at night is because there is a power accessible to us that can touch handkerchiefs and heal people. All right? And I love the humorous story about how these sorcerers were like, wow, look at Paul. He's casting out people in Jesus' name. Let's go play with that. And boy, did they get a butt kicking. I mean, they were stripped naked and bleeding and run out of the house. I mean, that would be a bad day, right? And so I love how Luke included that in here because this is why I think Luke did it. Paul was teaching them the truth and the Holy Spirit was proving that it was true. So there was no doubt that it was true. And that's what I want for us to experience in our church gatherings. So many people are coming in intellectual to our church and are like, hmm, let's see how they teach the Bible. Let's see if they can convince me that God is true or that the Bible is authoritative or that the Spirit of God can do anything. So much of our posture is doubt and skepticism and fear, not hope and love and peace and faith. And so what Paul was experiencing in Ephesus with the 12 that began to grow because it says in Acts 19, how many people heard about Jesus in the region? All of them. The entire city had heard about the Jesus that came after John the Baptist. And that whole progression began to take place in three years period of time. The entire city. And so in a city that had a ton of spirituality, in a city that was all about worship and money and power, the Holy Spirit brought power in such a, a powerful way because I believe that part of the reason why Paul in this chapter is emphasizing the power of the Holy Spirit more than in a lot of other places is because there's something for you and I to learn about the powers and forces in the cities where we live. Now, I don't want to get distracted by this, but I think this is very true. I've traveled the world enough to know that different cities have different pressures, Different cities have different demons, so to speak. I have um, friends in World Help that have been going to Thailand, and one of the things in Thailand that they're fighting up against is teenage sex trafficking, more than they've seen in anywhere else, and it's probably in other places around the world, but it is a, an evil in Thailand in some of the major cities there. When you come to Baltimore, pick your poison, right? Pick the evil. Our city is leading in all the categories in all the wrong places. And there's so much here that we're fighting up against. But I believe that Paul was teaching them in power because his power that comes through the Holy Spirit, through what Jesus did, could break the powers that were binding up the city of Ephesus. And you will see that as we get into the book of Ephesians and begin to understand that. And just to whet your appetite, for those of you that are deep theologians, turn to the seven churches mentioned in Revelation. Look at what is said to them about the spiritual forces that they were fighting against uniquely. 
and then look at the promises of God that were spoken to them that would free them from those particular forces. And some of you have lived in different places, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. And, but I have to say this. Through Jesus Christ, I don't care where you live, Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit can break every chain. It's not just a good worship song. It is true. It can happen. And so the Spirit of God can break the spirit of a city. And we have to walk in faith in that. There are so many things at work around us, but our God is able to take all of that. I love how Acts 19, what Ginger read, ends in verse 20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. I love that. I wonder when was the last time that you and I really felt like the word of God was spreading or that the word of God even had any power at all. One of the downsides of me doing this prayer week after a trip to Guatemala is number one, I'm exhausted, and number two, I've never worked that hard in my life, by the way, um, carrying cinder blocks up a mountain and hand-mixing concrete um, about destroyed this pastor that has had a hernia surgery and a knee surgery in the last year. <laughs> it was everything I could get in order to physically make it through this, but I will tell you this, it was evident that the power of God was all around us in the stories that were taking place. Now, we might not convince a one of you But for everybody that went on that trip, you cannot convince us otherwise because we saw it. We felt it. We went from having a meeting with a pastor that said for 20 years he'd been laboring and his heart was broken because there were 153 what he called college students, but it's actually like our high school that had no school for years and they could not complete their education and they were stuck in poverty and how he'd been writing letters to the minister of education. And I felt a burning in my spirit that that wasn't right and it could be fixed. And so I asked for a meeting with the president of Hope of Life, which is the organization that we stay with and minister through there. And I asked for a meeting. I just wanted to share the story with him for five minutes on his porch of his house. I was talking to him. He stopped me. He says, wait a minute. He picked up his phone, took off his glasses, and he did this because he has really bad eyesight. He's doing this, looking for names. And he called the minister of education in front of me. And 15 minutes later, a, a local judge called him from El Progreso, which is where our village is. And then followed up by that was a subordinate minister of education for that region. And within an hour, we had a commitment for high school teachers if, as long as we as churches would rally around and just get them a three-room schoolhouse. And so in the midst of that, I didn't celebrate. Guess what I did? I asked for something else. <laughs> I said to them, the medical clinic hasn't been touched in 30 years. This little hut is nasty. The roof leaks. And I said, if we rally to get a school in the community, you guys have to renovate the clinic. And they said, absolutely. And so our village within the next 12 months is going to have a high school that somebody's been praying for for 20 years, right? I just want you guys to hear me when I say this. There are things that God wants to do, not just in Puerto de Golpe, Guatemala, but God is wanting to do here in Baltimore. And there's a young lady in our church who today was invited into a sacred space because of the effort she's been putting into for the juveniles in our prison system. 
and she's faithfully serving God in some of the darkest places of our city, but she is saying the Holy Spirit can empower a young white woman to go into a Baltimore City juvenile detention center and share the hope of Jesus Christ so much so that the people that are the powers to be in our city are noticing, and they're like, how can we help? I'm just telling you guys this. There's more accessible to us than just good worship and a good lingering time on a Sunday morning. There are things that God wants to do in our city that is as powerful as breaking the spirits that have had a stronghold here for decades. And you and I could be a part of it. So much about this is what I hope will come out of this. And so what we will find in Paul's teaching is he is going to overemphasize a proper thinking about Jesus. He's going to overemphasize a proper thinking about the kingdom of God. You will not hear Paul say, I want you to believe in Jesus so you can go to heaven. You are going to hear Paul say, you need to believe in Jesus so he can empower you to bring his kingdom here. And that's what you're going to hear Paul saying as we go through the book of Ephesians. And I think it's really important for us. Yes, we want eternal security. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, it is sealed. It can't be taken away from us. If you're bad tonight when you get home from here, you don't have to ask Jesus to go to heaven again tomorrow. He will forgive you. You are sealed in his presence. And we'll find out more about that type of theology in the letter to Ephesians. We will know who Jesus is, what the kingdom is, and we are also going to understand, if we get the book of Ephesians properly, that the power of the Holy Spirit is accessible to us today. And I hope that we can, we can grasp that. So what do we see in Acts 19? Let me just summarize it this way. What, did, what was Paul's church planting strategy in Ephesus? He just walked into town and saw who was spiritually interested he found 12 people that were spiritually emphasis. And then what did he do? He talked to them about Jesus for an insane amount of time. This is the struggle. Paul did not teach the people to lead a spiritual revolution and set aside the darkness in Ephesus in three years because they met together once a week. When you read and you understand what they were doing, it wasn't just a once a Sunday experience for these 12 that then birthed into more and more and more people. It was a massive amount of time that they committed to understanding who Jesus was and learning to be a tool in the Spirit's hand. And so they understood discipleship. They understood that the Holy Spirit brought power and they weren't satisfied with anything less than the power of God. And they began to understand the right words about God. But the thing that I love and the thing that I know as a church, well, we need to grow in all these areas, but the last thing we definitely need to grow in is there was a public recognition of the gospel that church stood for. The people around them knew exactly who they were worshiping. There was not a question in any people's minds about who was being taught and who was being instructed in Jesus Christ at this time in the city of Ephesus because they were so emboldened in their faith that they were willing to make a public stand. 
Now, let me tell you a couple things about Paul. Um, I think he gets a bad rap, and sometimes he earns it, right? But here's something that I want you to see. Much like he said to the church in Thessalonica, he was telling them, look, you are dear brothers and sisters to a most holy God. I mean, you are dear sons and daughters to a most holy God. He's telling them, you are loved by God. He told the city of Colossae that they, in God's eyes, Colossians chapter 3, were holy and dearly loved in God's eyes. So he's repeatedly, repetitively telling people who they are in God and reminding them over and over and over again. But when they ever had an idea that there was anything but Jesus, he had the boldness to say, you're wrong. But he didn't say it like a jerk. It seems like, especially if you go back to some of the older translations of the Bible, there's people that preach it like Paul was this serious jerk. But when you go back in the letter, in Luke's writings about Paul's ministry in Acts, especially in Acts chapter 17, he walks in and he's like, look, you guys have lots of gods. Um, but you know that God can't be housed in a temple or in a statue? I mean, that was insulting. But he didn't say it like a jerk. He came in and told him the truth and learned how to be gentle and kind and compassionate, how to be long-suffering and patient. I mean, the fruits of the Spirit were evident in Paul. And so therefore, the people that witnessed Paul's teaching, what do you think they looked like? They were gentle. They were kind. They didn't go into the temple of Artemis and try to light it on fire. They just put it out of business. I mean, people were bringing their scrolls and their statues, and we're going to read more about this tomorrow night, but yet we're going to find that the riot was all over the fact that the people that were making the statues and were making money off the temple were like, where did all of our business go? Do we want to shut down the strip clubs on Baltimore Street? Then we need to teach men what it looks like to honor God with their life. And if there's no men to go, they're not going to make any money. Right? We're, if we want women to be treated with dignity, then let's make some disciples of men. Right? And if we want women to be um, discipled and so that they stop abusing us men, um, then we need to make disciples of women. Right? I'm just joking. You guys just knew that was so <laughs> You don't live in my home with me. Save me. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah, I know. She's going to be like, going, I'm not going home now. Right? Be here all night praying. Um, all right, so here, this is the thing about Paul. He's humble. He talks to people in public. He talks to people in private. He doesn't just migrate to one or the other. And he doesn't tell people, well, just as long as you believe it in your heart. What would it look like for um, Rosa Parks? to have just gotten on the bus and said, you know what? Just as long as you guys think right to yourself, everything's going to be okay. You know, as long as you believe in your heart, you're not a racist. You're, you're going to be okay. No. She knew that it wasn't just what you thought. And it wasn't just was in your spirit as Brandon and Emily talked about the heart of God in us on Sunday. It took action. And we have got to figure out how to let the word of God, the truth of God, the right thinking about God get into us 
so that the right actions come out. And sometimes people are going to love that, and sometimes people aren't going to love that. But at the end of the day, guys, the hope of the world isn't religion. The hope of the world isn't that you just have a spiritual place. The hope of the world is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, if there's any confusion. And that is where it comes from. And Paul is doing this. He's speaking on this. And so here's, here's part of the reason why I'm so excited about this book, and then I'm going to close. My family moved here 10 years ago, January 1st. So we're now into our 10th, 11th year living in the city. And I am so excited about what the church has grown into. When I see the reports coming out of Patterson Park, and I see the reports coming out of Suibo, and I see the faces like I saw here on Sunday, and I see my friend Leon teaching, and I see Brandon and Emily teaching, and I begin to sense that God's doing something. I'll tell you guys this. I am thankful for those hard 10 years. But as I've been reading Ephesians for several months now, and as I've been thinking about this particular prayer week, I can't tell you how excited I am about the next 10 years. I know a lot of you won't be here unless the Holy Spirit changes your heart. <laughs> I had to say that. But I do know that whether you're here for another week, a year, five years, seven years, or you're, you're with us for the long haul, that the Holy Spirit can do more than we ever could imagine. But it starts with us as disciples spending a disproportionate amount of time with each other. Can I tell you, one of the reasons why I love the Guatemala trip is because I get isolated time for seven days with a handful of you. I love, I love, love getting quantity time. And we've got to figure out a way of changing what we're doing as a church so that we are doing what needs to be done so that the spiritual forces that have a hold on this city are broken. And I believe that if we're faithful through these nine days and we get a glimpse of Ephesians and you read it over and over again, I won't have to teach you anything. The Holy Spirit will do it. And I will just be confirming that. So Paul gathered disciples, he focused those disciples, he unleashed those disciples in Ephesus with power, and I want us to do the same thing here. So how do we pray out of this tonight? This is how I'd like for us to pray, and if you need to go, if you could leave quietly at the end, I understand you can pray more at home, but how are we going to pray tonight as we walk out of here? Here's a couple of thoughts. Are you wanting to really know Jesus? I don't, I don't want you to just want to come to church and have a good church to be safe in, but is it our heart's desire to really know Christ? Is it our desire to really be a tool in the Holy Spirit's hands? Where could we free up our schedule so that we could learn and put into practice more frequently together. We might just need to hold our day planners out the next nine days in front of the Lord and say, Lord, unless you erase something, I will not have the time to be a disciple. Where do you need to see power tonight? Where do you need to see power? 
And even just in thinking through these questions tonight, who's on your heart tonight? Who is the Holy Spirit burning? Is it you or is it a spouse? Is it a friend? Is it a neighbor? Is it somebody in trouble? Is it a homeless person near where you live that you don't know the name of, but yet they're just on your mind tonight? 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. One of the mistakes that a lot of pastors make is trying to be the conviction agent. I promise you I am going to say things that I believe is what Paul's intent is in the letter to Ephesus, and you may not agree with me. But I don't want you to agree with me. I want you to agree with the Holy Spirit. And so I want us to ask, Father, is this true every time we feel rubbed the wrong way? Is this true? Is this a part of your kingdom coming, your will being done on earth as it is in heaven? Because, guys, I promise you, if we, can, if we walk in the steps that God is laying out for us, it will not take 10 years for everyone in Baltimore to know the truth. We could do it in three. We could do it in four. And if most of you leave, we could do it in five. But we can figure it out. Let's, so tonight, as you go to pray, are you wanting to really know Jesus? Are you willing to be a tool in the Holy Spirit's hands? Where do you need to free up your schedule to learn and to practice as a disciple? Where do you need to see power and who is on your heart? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be together tonight. Father, I do not want to be a distraction to the Holy Spirit teaching. And so, Father, I ask in Jesus' name that we would see the truth that we would understand that that is Jesus and that we would understand that the promise of the Spirit from Jesus to us is true as well and that Spirit can do more than we allow him to do. And so, Father, um, tonight would you, through prayer, speak in and through your body to everyone here tonight. Father, we want our church to be a kingdom of God agent for this city. Would you usher in your kingdom through our church? Would you usher in your kingdom through all of our brother and sister churches? Those that have our name and those that don't carry our name. Because, Father, I know that there are many in this city that believe. Father, strengthen them, encourage them, empower them, and bring your kingdom here, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.